All right, breaking news now out of Michigan, where Ethan Crumbly, the teenager who killed four fellow students and wounded others in a shooting at Oxford High School two years ago, was just sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This after a dramatic day in court where dozens of people delivered emotional victim impact statements. CNN's Gene Casares is outside the courthouse in Pontiac, Michigan. Gene, an incredibly emotional day in that courtroom. It really was. And I do want to say once again that he was just sentenced, the defendant in this case, to life in prison without any possibility of parole. And Jake, legal history was just made in this case because according to the legal documents, this is a case of first impression in regard to sentencing. This defendant is the first one since the Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that for a juvenile, life in prison without parole is an extraordinary sentence only for the worst juvenile offender. This, Ethan Crumbly, is the first defendant to be originally sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There have been many that have been resentenced that early on got life in prison without the possibility of parole, but this is the first time since 2012 that someone has been originally sentenced and received life without the possibility of parole. Now saying that, today was all about the victims. It was all about what they have gone through. They have stood silent for two years now. They have been in that courtroom. I've been there, I've been to the hearings. And as the prosecutor said in her closing argument, they didn't understand in a sense that all these due process rights for the defendant came out. But where were, who cared about them? Today, the caring was for them, and we heard the stories. And I think we may have some sounds that we can just show the audience exactly what these family members of those that died, living, surviving victims that were shot, and family members, what they had to say. All right, Gene Casares, thank you uh, so much. Uh, the four innocent victims we should note were all just teenagers Madison Baldwin, 17. Tate Meir, 16, Justin Schilling, 17, and Hannah St. Juliana, 14 years old. Um, uh, joining us now, a trial attorney, uh, Misty Maris. Misty, your reactions to the sentence? You know, Jake, I'm not surprised. I spent the day watching all of the victims in this case, the family members, those that were in the school on that day testify and, and read their victim impact statements to the judge and understanding the impact of Ethan Crumbly's actions on this community, on the victim's families was truly gut-wrenching. But more so than what the victim set forth in the courthouse today, we had already seen much of what was going to be the basis for the judge's decision on sentencing back during the summer during what's called a Miller hearing. A Miller hearing is a prerequisite for life in prison without the possibility of parole for a juvenile to even be on the table. So what the judge focused on in his ultimate decision and justification for the life without parole, which as Gene says, is historic because of Ethan Crumbly's age 15 at the time of the crime and 17 now was the premeditation, the planning. There was a digital footprint, there was a journal. Ethan Crumbly planned this and he executed every single piece of his plan. And that was largely where the judge had his focus in this uh, in the sentencing today. And another thing, Jake, I do find, you know, to be something that we didn't know was going to happen 
Ethan Crumbly spoke to the court and he said, no one could have stopped me. And he said, I want to, uh, I want the sentence that, that all of the victims are asking for. So again, the judge used that in his ultimate determination. We heard that from the bench. This will be life in prison without the possibility of parole. And what do you think is going to happen uh, with the case against uh, Ethan Crumbly's parents for their alleged roles in allowing him access to guns, not seeming to do enough about warning signs concerning their son and, and more? So, Jake, that's an excellent question because we know that that case is coming up right around the corner. That case is coming up in January. So it is a novel legal theory. His parents are being charged with involuntary manslaughter, which relates directly back to the death of these victims, saying that not only did they ha- there were their omissions, that he had mental health issues that they did not address, that they actually had a an active role because they purchased the gun that Ethan Crumbly ultimately used in in killing these four individuals and terrorizing the school on that day. So those that's the piece of it that, that's going to be decided. But that's not normally how a case like that manifests because in general, uh, an individual cannot be held criminally responsible for the act of a third person, even when it's a parent. So usually these types of cases are child abuse, child neglect cases, failure to lock up a firearm. We've seen those and we've seen those legal theories. So this legal theory is different, involving involuntary manslaughter. Now a defense attorney watching the judge's statement today from the bench will say, Ethan himself said, nothing could have stopped him. So how can they find, a jury find that this is reckless conduct? So that's going to be a part and parcel of the argument, but how that case turns out is going to be really Uh, something to watch because it is a novel legal theory. All right, Ms. Maris, thanks so much. Turning now to our national lead today and the United States struggling at the most basic levels to be able to condemn and evolve past bigotry and hate. Just today, New York police announced they're searching for a suspect who beat and robbed a Jewish man last night near an Orthodox synagogue on the first night of Hanukkah. Police say the victim was wearing traditional religious garb when the attacker punched him in the head, stole his cell phone and called him a dirty Jew. Earlier today, a suspect accused of firing a gun in the air outside a New York synagogue in Albany yesterday appeared in court. Police say he yelled, free Palestine, before he was arrested. The violence and prejudice has also hit the Muslim and Arab American communities in the U.S. Earlier this week, we saw a video of Hisham Awartani leaving the hospital in Vermont. He is one of the three Palestinian students so tragically shot in Vermont while speaking English and Arabic and wearing... um, uh, he, he is uh, now paralyzed from the chest down. Awful. But we have to note, this has been a week of real attention to anti-Semitism in America. This morning, the White House disassociated itself from a leading Muslim American organization, the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, after the president of CARE was discovered to have said this about the Hamas attacks on October 7th. The people of Gaza only decided to break the siege, the walls of the concentration camp on October 7th. And yes, I was happy to see people breaking the siege and throwing down the shackles of their own land and walk free into their lands that they were not allowed to walk in. In a statement after his remarks became public, uh, the president of CARE said that he condemned violence against all civilians and all forms of bigotry, and he claimed his comments had been taken out of context. 
And then, of course, you have the three presidents of three well-respected leading American universities now facing multiple calls to resign after their disastrous testimony on Capitol Hill earlier this week. The leaders of MIT, the University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard struggling to answer what seems like a fairly simple question from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York. Dr. Kornbluth, does M at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? It targeted at individuals not making public statements. Now, it does seem like yes would be the easy answer. Yes, as in it would be harassment if you were calling for the genocide of blacks or Latinos or Muslims or the trans community or immigrants or any other group, one would hope. Is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. The answer for most of us is obviously yes. Calling for the genocide of any group would qualify, qualify as harassment on a college campus. Now, there are several reasons I've heard hypothesized as to why the university presidents seem to struggle to answer that question. One is that language calling for the death of Jews, especially in Israel, has become normalized on far too many American campuses. Just a few months ago, for example, Penn allowed a book festival on campus that featured several speakers with a history of making anti-Semitic comments. Another issue might have been the premise of Stefanik's definition of genocide, a premise that was not included in many of the viral clips. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? Now, as a factual matter, Stefanik was providing one definition of intifada. It's a prevalent one, but she was not providing the only definition. She was certainly providing one that a lot of Jews here when they hear calls to globalize the Intifada, and for that matter, one that a lot of Jew haters use. But it's not the only definition. Intifada is a word that means in Arabic, shaking off, like a dog might shake off water. In the Arab world, it commonly means uprising, or rebellion, or revolution. Three years ago on Al Jazeera's website, an essay was written during the Black Lives Matter protests called Globalize the Intifada, and it said, quote, Across the globe, from the U.S. to the Middle East, pauperized citizenries are rising up to reform or remove the militarized, racist, and violent governments and regimes ruling over them, unquote. Now, that said, there are contexts to these things. A written article on a website is different than a mob shutting down a dining hall at the University of Massachusetts Amherst this week, chanting intifada, while you're trying to enjoy your lunch a few weeks after the deadliest attack on Jews since the Holocaust. As it pertains to Israel and the Palestinians, there have been two intifadas, both of which were protests of Israel's occupation of the West Bank that quickly turned violent and bloody against Palestinians and including acts of terrorism against Israeli civilians in Israeli buses and restaurants. 
So when students chant, globalize the intifada, is every one of them knowingly saying they want to bring violence and slaughter to Jews around the world? I cannot imagine that to be the case, but does that let them off the hook for using that term? Do they know how others take it? What about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? Israelis hear that and think, oh, you want to destroy Israel from the West Bank to Gaza. Is that what every college student chanting that term means? In the Wall Street Journal this week, a poll revealed that less than half of the students who use the slogan from the river to the sea could actually name both the river and the sea. It's the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, by the way. Maybe more time reading, less time standing on the table in dining halls. Either way, it's not difficult to see why many Jews who hear these terms would think that globalizing the Intifada means violence against Jews worldwide, especially after October 7th. And while that might not be what everyone chanting these terms means, it's certainly what a lot of folks hear. And when you learn that the head of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the number one Muslim American group in America, is celebrating October 7th, well, let's just say that doesn't help relations. Let's bring in Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism around the world. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jim. Really Thank appreciate you for it. Having me. So every place you go around the world, you hear from Jews, and they're worried about coming here to the United States, particularly to college campuses, I would think, these days. Is it safe? Is it safe for my kid in Canada or wherever? I hear about this university, I hear about that. I hear they're taking down mezuzahs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a visceral fear. Is it worse now than, than before? It is worse now. It's more extensive, it's more pervasive. And I've heard it since October 7th. I've been in Rome, I've been in Paris, I'm at the headquarters of UNESCO, I've been throughout Germany. I was just, just came back from Canada this morning. Um, and I've heard from students and people in universities uh, in many different places throughout the world. And it's a similar story. In Canada, one young man told me he was on campus and there was supposed to be a, a demonstration, an anti-Israel demonstration. And his Jewish friends called him and said, is it safe to come to campus? Uh, a student in McGill took the mezuzah off the out in, Can- in Montreal, off the outside of her door and put it on the inside of her door. Do you want to tell what people what a mezuzah are? A mezuzah is a little container, and it contains the words of the Shema, the sort of watchword of Ju- Judaism here, yeah. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you put it on your door sort of as a protective element. Yeah. And it has become a way of identifying, identifying Jews, Jewish homes. Um, and many students put it up on their on their uh, doorway and people would have doorways to their offices, et cetera, and certainly their homes. What do you tell people? Is it safe? Do you tell them it's safe? I can't tell them I'm sad. My heart is broken. I don't tell them yes or no. I wear a Jewish star, something I only started to wear recently. I didn't used to wear it, but I don't want to go underground. I don't want to go, but, but I've got security. I've got people watching out for me. Um, but I don't know what to tell us. I had this interchange with the parents in France. And she said to me, I took my child out of the public schools because he was being harassed by the, by the other students. Some of them Muslim, some not, many not Muslim. Uh, you're a Jew, you're, you're an occupier, you're terrible, etc. And then I put him in the Jewish school. 
And then uh, Hamas called for a global day of terror against Jewish institutions, and I was afraid to send them to the Jewish school. Yeah. What should I do? And I, I couldn't answer her because it's her child and not mine. Uh, you see anti-Semitism as not just a threat to Jews, which, by the way, if that's all it was, that's bad enough. That's right. There shouldn't be a threat to anybody. There shouldn't be a threat to Muslims. There shouldn't be a threat to Jews. There shouldn't be a threat to Latinos, etc. But you see it as not just a threat to Jews. You see it as a threat to democracy. I see it as a threat to democracy. I've been saying that today, since day one when I entered office. Anybody who buys into the conspiracy myth, which is at the heart of anti-Semitism, has bought into the ridiculous notions the Jews control the world, the Jews control the government, the media, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. They've given up on democracy. So that's one reason. I mean, that should be a matter of great concern. But I began, I've begun to feel over the past months, and certainly since October 7th, that it's even more than just that. It's a threat to international and national stability, security. Bad actors, bad countries, bad individuals, NGOs, people with different agendas have figured out that anti-Semitism is a way of stirring up the pot of society, the welfare in democratic countries, in Western countries, European countries, and in other parts of the world. If we want to create uh, a, a, a chaos, if we want to create people against each other, oh, sure. anti-Semitism is a good tool. Yeah. So if you worry about, if you, you worry about the welfare of Jews, worry about anti-Semitism. If you're worried about the welfare of democracy, worry about anti-Semitism. If you're worried about the national security and national stability of your country, and this goes for not just the United States, for, for France, for Germany, for so many countries, for Belgium, worry about the rise of anti-Semitism. So whether it is the university presidents having a difficult time answering what should be a simple question, and we explained the whole intifada right. thing, but she, she was just asking about condemning genocide. You know, I think her next follow-up might have been the, the tricky one, but she, she framed the, the genocide thing pretty simply. Or the difficulty the world has had condemning the rapes and all that by Hamas, et cetera. What's going on? It's a relativism, it's a justification. When it comes to gang rapes, when it comes to individual rapes, when it comes to mutilation of women, of children, of families, of burning them alive, when it comes to genocide, there is no but. There is no justification for a but means I'm gonna justify it. It's, it's, it's bad, but, personally, but let's think of the other things. There is no but. And that should be said irrespective of what your position is on the Middle East crisis. You can take a, a variety of positions, but there should be no difficulty in, in condemning rape, gang rape, uh, killing of parents in front of children, children in front of parents, burning homes with people alive, or condemning genocide. Ambassador Lipstadt, great to have you here. Thank, Thank you so you. much. And happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to you and to all those celebrating. When should colleges and universities step in when it comes to rhetoric on campuses crossing some sort of line? We're going to go more into that debate next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. 
When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with the discussion about the alarming rise of anti-Semitism across the country and calls for college and university presidents to do more to rein in hateful speech. It's not an easy topic, is the truth. Let's bring in Frederick Lawrence. He's a lecturer at Georgetown University Law Center and former president of Brandeis University. Also, Nico Perino, vice president for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, also known as FIRE, which advocates for free speech. Um, and and uh, so let me start with uh, you, Mr. Lawrence, as a former university president. How do you see how the university presidents handled this? It's, it's, um, it seems like it would be an easy question. Uh, do calls for genocide of Jews violate harassment policies? I think that one was an easy question, and by not getting that one right, they never got to the questions that really were about context. So just because I can't tell when it's dusk and dawn, it doesn't mean I don't know when it's midnight. And genocide is a midnight question. Can you advocate for genocide on the campus? The answer to that one's got to be no. That's a violation of your rules. Had they said that, I think then they could have gotten into other questions about context. Like Intifada or River to the Sea or... Look, a lot of what's happening on campus is, is really more about naivete at best and ignorance at worst. You will never punish your way into solving ignorance. The way you solve ignorance is education. That's what higher education... But you is disagree. You think the genocide question they, they were right on. Well, President McGill over at the University of Pennsylvania said in her statement the next day that University of Pennsylvania's policies reflect constitutional and legal, legal standards. And there is no First Amendment exception for an abstract call for genocide. I'll give you an example, right? At Drexel University, your hometown, Philadelphia, yeah. in 2018, we had a professor who called for the genocide of all white people. He was right? joking, I remember he was, this. He was joking, yeah. He said, all I want for Christmas is white genocide, right? He was making fun of the conservatives that think white genocide is a real yeah, thing. White yeah. nationalists who yeah, have yeah. this theory about white replacement, yeah. right? Context does matter, though. He was a white professor. This right. wasn't a targeted at anyone. Right. And it was a joke, right? So a if bad the question, joke, but yeah. yeah. But so if the question is, what are your policies on genocide, right, on calling for genocide, the presidents were right. Context does matter. Now, that isn't to say that sometimes that calls for genocide won't meet the standard for incitement to imminent lawless action, that they won't meet the standard for discriminatory harassment, which, by the way, we have a legal standard for from a 1999 Supreme Court case, Davis, for peer-on-peer harassment. Doesn't mean it won't meet the standard for true threat, but just an abstract exception to the First Amendment for calls for genocide would, on its face, loop in that professor in Philadelphia who tweeted out, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. I think the problem is that you never even get to that conversation if sure. you're not willing to say there are certain things that on this campus we're going to come down on, we're going to come down on strongly. If you look at what Peter Salovey, the president of Yale, put out today, he says that statements like that, advocating for genocide, threaten my Jewish students, and I'm going to come down on those. And then that allows the rest of the conversation to go on precisely the way you're talking about where context does happen. I think the mistake the presidents made is they went right to context. And then people recoiled from that, and understandably it, so. It, it was certainly ham-fisted, right? It was, I think we can all agree that it, it was ham-fisted. But if you give those in power on campus the power to censor abstract calls for genocide, the first students who are going to be punished for that are Jewish students supporting Israel's invasion of Gaza, which all across the country right now we have folks saying is an act of genocide. 
right? And you say, you have people saying that from the river to the sea is a call for genocide. So if you untether these legal standards from the law, you get just political calculation. And we see that all the time on college campuses where double standards are ripe, where there's hypocrisy. You have schools that say, um, you know, like, that say yoga is an act of cultural appropriation or that asking someone where they're from is a racist microaggression, right? So I think that's what aggravated a lot of people is the double standards they see on these college campuses. Part of this is there's a very small group, and I think we'd agree on this, a very small group of cases, maybe you wouldn't agree with this, <laughs> we'll where, you, where you actually can prohibit speech. The more interesting category to me are those areas where speech will go forward, but the university ought to make strong statements opposed to the content ought to make strong statements opposed to what's being said. Because a lot of campuses have felt unwilling to do that. Sure. I think that's where you come out the way we have now, where a lot of what happened in that hearing really was saying to the presidents, do you care about these issues? You want to do something about these issues? Mm -hmm. And what came back was, well, sort of. That's the wrong answer. Well, the right answer is we care desperately about these, these colleges issues. are trying to please everyone and they're ending up pleasing no one. That's why you have the president of Harvard writing like seven different statements, yeah. right? <laughs> they don't know what their institutional values are. They don't know what their core telos is that when, they need to appeal to. When I, when I do trustee retreats with boards of trustees, the first thing I talk to them about is what's the mission of the university? Refract yes. all of these tough questions through the lens of what's the mission of this university? Because if what you're trying to figure out is which way is the wind is blowing, that's easy. The wind is blowing 360 and is blowing at gale force. You'll yeah. never make a good yeah. decision. And the other thing, the note that you pointed out, which is that uh, we're also at a time where universities have these microaggression things, yes. except there does seem to be this little carve out with, we don't care what Jewish students are thinking. That's one of the other issues that a lot of people care about. Yeah, I mean, they, they see, for example, these carve out for microaggressions. They see at Emerson College, for example, a student group handing out China kind of sus stickers and the president of the university issuing a statement to the entire campus community accusing these students of anti-Asian hate and bias. Right? That accusing them of. What were they talking about? The government of they China? They were talking about the government of the China. And by the way, the vice president of that student organization was herself Asian. Right? Yeah. So this is just devoid of context. And they're trying to follow all these different uh, campus communities that are trying to pull them in different directions, but they don't know what their core values are. We could are. do three hours on this, and you guys were great. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. I don't think we're going to yeah. come to a conclusion, but, but well, at, least, not today. at least a civil conversation. We appreciate yes, uh, both of you. Um, thank you so much. And we know your president's going to be on Bill Maher uh, tonight, so I'm sure people will be watching. That's on HBO Max. A after three long weeks, the ruling is in, ordering uh, Donald Trump to keep his lips zipped when it comes to those in his federal election subversion case. Good luck with that. That decision this afternoon is coming up. In our law and justice lead, an appeals court today largely upholding the gag order against former President Donald Trump in his federal election subversion case, even as he campaigns to be elected to the presidency again. The court ruled Trump is still barred from talking about witnesses as well as prosecutors, the court staff, and their family members. But the court said the gag order does not apply to comments made about special counsel Jack Smith or the Justice Department or President Biden. Trump has already reacted on social media and said he will appeal. In our 2024 lead, oh, there it is. Nice, thank you. You know, I, I dig the music. Political attack ads are ramping up with 38 days until Iowa's Republican caucuses. A super PAC backing Ambassador Nikki Haley has two out. One of them takes on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to build the wall. Build the wall. Project to get Judges are a priority. For, and honestly, made, made in China, China and Russia. Here. Businesses that have been locked down. What a phony. Hmm. As candidates make their way to Iowa this weekend, Chris Christie is in New Hampshire. 
the first state to hold a primary. CNN's Omar Jimenez is traveling with him as Christie faces growing pressure to drop out of the 2024 race. I haven't had one donor, not one of my significant donors or any donor at all, call me and say that we should get out of this race. Um, I haven't had one supporter call me and tell me to get out of this race. So at this point, there are no plans for you to go anywhere. Omar, um, you come on January 23rd. You're going to see me here shaking hands until the polls close. Um, and we're going to do very well in New Hampshire. I'm not going anywhere. The motto in New Hampshire is live free or die. But at this stage, for Chris Christie, it may be do or die. It's game time now. For the past two days, Christie has been touring college campuses in New Hampshire, hoping to drive enthusiasm among some younger voters. Your vote means more here than it will mean in any other state in the country this year. So that's why I'm here. Our party has neglected college campuses and college voters. Um, over the course of the cycles, both in statewide races and in national races. With the campaign in full swing, a CNN University of New Hampshire poll last month showed Christie in third place in the Granite State's GOP primary at 14 percent, behind Donald Trump at 42 percent and Nikki Haley at 20 percent. In the battle to emerge as the leading Trump alternative, a strong finish here could send a critical message. After New Hampshire, there has to be only one other Republican candidate, not Trump. And the picture now may not exactly match the picture in a month. So what we've seen historically in the New Hampshire primary is that upwards of 25% to a third say they make up their mind on election day, and upwards of 50% are still undecided over the last weekend of the election. So a lot can happen. The former New Jersey governor is waving off suggestions he end his bid and throw his support behind Haley, even as he publicly defends her from attacks from rivals. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. On the campaign trail, he stood by that strategy. I'm going to try to beat her, but I respect her. But he maintains it's respect, not retreat. We're both trying to beat the other one. Are you and Nikki Haley able to coexist in this race without benefiting Trump? Of course. If Nikki were to get out of this race tomorrow and tell all her voters to endorse me, do you think that they would actually all come and vote for me? Of course not. And while the polls to this point haven't exactly favored the former New Jersey governor, there's only one poll he cares about. So should we all just give up because you guys took a poll? Elections aren't determined by you. Elections are determined by voters, and not one person has voted yet. And obviously, Governor Christie has spent a lot of time campaigning in New Hampshire, so I asked him what's next, and he specifically said Michigan. Why? Because you don't have to register as a Democrat or Republican to vote in that primary, meaning he's looking at potentially bringing people from the other side, but also some independents as well, Jay. All right. Omar Jimenez in Hookset, New Hampshire. Coming up, an exclusive with Sheryl Sandberg after using her platform to call out Hamas and its atrocities of war using sexual violence and rape against women and girls and all those who have been silent about Hamas. Stay with us. Our world lead now yesterday, two months to the day after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Vice President Kamala Harris condemned Hamas's sexual assaults and rapes of Israeli girls and women, saying, quote, rape can never be used as a weapon of war. I've spent my career protecting women and girls from heinous crimes of sexual violence and will continue to do so. Some women's rights activists and advocacy groups remain shockingly silent to this day. It has prompted others to call them out, including Sheryl Sandberg, the former chief operating officer of Facebook, 
and co-founder of the nonprofit Lean In. Sandberg spoke this week at an assembly hosted by Israel at the United Nations. This goes beyond politics. If we can't agree that rape is wrong, then we have accepted the unacceptable. Then the question will be not what is happening in the Middle East, but what is happening to our humanity. Cheryl Sandberg joins the lead right now. We do want to warn you, some of what we're about to discuss is going to be disturbing to listen to. And Cheryl Sandberg joins us now. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. So how did we get to the point where you felt as though you needed to to step in and say what should be so obvious that these women and girls were raped by Hamas and that's not okay and the world needed to recognize it. Well, I think it's, it, it's not a good thing that it took, uh, took all of us getting to this point. And I wanna start by thanking you, Jake, because no one in mainstream was talking about this three weeks ago and you went on air and CNN backed you and you guys have been on this, you were first. And, and I followed you and I'm, I'm really, as a man, your journalistic organization, I'm really grateful. But the silence on this was absolutely deafening. You know, look, this is a very, very difficult political issue. And there are lots of strong views on all sides. And that's fine. Anyone can have any view they want to have about what's happening in the Middle East. But we need to be united in condemning mass rape. That's not something there are two sides on. There are no two sides. Rape should never be used as an act of war. And we need to condemn rape loudly and always, wherever it happens, Israel, Ethiopia, Sudan, Ukraine, rape, rape is never justified. Never. Yeah. And, and uh, you've noted uh, with frustration how it's taken so long for so many um, women's organizations, uh, feminist organizations to say something. Planned Parenthood finally released a statement this week saying, quote, Planned Parenthood unequivocally condemns the atrocities committed by Hamas and rape as an act of war in any conflict. Why do you think It has taken so many women's organizations so long uh, to condemn um, these these atrocities when when firsthand testimony and physical evidence exists. Well, that's why what we did at the U.N. is so important. So on Monday at the U.N. and the testimony is up there, I really encourage anyone who has any doubts to watch it. What you heard are firsthand accounts from people who are on the ground in Israel, and apologies, this is hard stuff to talk about, but here's what we heard. People saw from their own eyes, body after body after body, that didn't only show signs of rape, they did. But severe genital and sexual mutilation. We heard testimony about a girl where there were nails in her private parts, Um, many, many bodies where their genitals were shot a breast of a woman either shot or cut off while she was being raped, while she was alive. Please watch the testimony because it's unequivocal what happened. And, you know, as the women's organizations, human rights groups, it's only been 30 years where rape was even considered or prosecuted as a crime against humanity. So if we don't speak out against these rapes with this kind of evidence staring us in the face, we threaten to undo decades of progress and an entire movement. So any women's organization, thank you to Planned Parenthood for speaking out. Reproductive Freedom for All spoke out today. Please speak out. It is not too late to use your voice 
for what should be unequivocally clear to all of us. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you're never it doesn't mean you're taking a position in a war. It doesn't mean you're taking a position in favor of a politician. It's it's just talking about these horrific acts. And and you note it's 30 years. It wasn't until um, Bill Clinton's Secretary of State Madeleine Albright pushed for war crimes tribunal to finally recognize rape as, as a a weapon of war for um, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and the war in former Yugoslavia. But but the UN has been slow, even sclerotic here. I mean, that event at the UN, we should note, that wasn't a UN event. It was Israel hosting an event with you and Hillary Clinton and Senator Gillibrand and all those um, individuals providing the witness testimony. What happens if the UN ultimately does not take these rapes, these mass rapes, seriously? Well, you're right, Jake. We hosted the event the UN should have hosted. Israel shouldn't have had to host that. I shouldn't have had to do that. We should have been invited to a session at the UN, but we were not. Uh, UN women was glacially slow. It took them 55 days to speak out against those rapes. That flies in the face of how quickly they've spoken out with alarm when there are rumors of sexual violence in other situations like Ukraine. We called in that event on the entire UN, every member to condemn Hamas for these rapes, make sure there's a full investigation and hold the terrorists accountable here. Now you're seeing more bipartisan support, 87 members of Congress signs a letter condemning Hamas for these acts, but that shouldn't be unusual. That should be absolutely assumed. And you're right, you can call for a Palestinian state, you can call for an Israeli state, you can have any opinion you want to have, I think, within reason on this conflict and still condemn rape. I think it's also worth noting that we fought hard for the progress the women's movement and women's organizations made in Me Too. We said, believe women. All of these organizations said, believe women. All of the, the people who, who said this, now is an opportunity to believe women because we've got to decide who to believe. Do we believe Hamas spokespeople who said rape is forbidden, it couldn't have happened? Right. Or do we look at the bodies of these women? These bodies tell us how these women spent the very last moments of their lives. And that is devastating. One of the people, the witnesses, a man stood there at the UN and he stood at the podium and he said he is standing there speaking for the women who are now gone and aren't able to scream about what happened to them, but he is going to tell the world what happened to them. And it's time for the entire world to take notice, see this clearly, and condemn this. Anything else, it, it reduces our common humanity. It's completely not okay. Yeah. And some of the skeptics, shall we call them, are asking how come no firsthand uh, testimonies of the victims. It's because uh, almost all of them were either killed or kidnapped. Uh, and we worry about what's happening to those women in their teens, 20s, and 30s uh, that Hamas holds today. Cheryl Sandberg, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for speaking out about this very, very important issue. Jake and CNN, thank you for your leadership. Y'all made a really big difference here. Please keep covering this until everyone condemns what should be obvious. Rape is never okay. Thank you, Cheryl. The president's son, Hunter Biden, facing new federal charges. Up next, a top Republican trying to tie his father, the president, to his son's scandalous life. Plus, a Democrat here with the rebuttal. Stay with us.
I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, first-hand accounts from civilians in war. Hear from Palestinians essentially trapped in Gaza. What do they really think about Hamas? What do they really think about the conflict? Plus, the state of Texas pushing back on a court order that allowed a woman to terminate a high-risk pregnancy. The case challenges one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. And leading this hour, Hunter Biden on Republicans who want to tie his legal problems to his father. Here's what he had to say in a new podcast released today. They are trying to, in the in in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In their most base way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle. An informed source tells CNN that that podcast was recorded before prosecutors dropped nine new federal charges on Hunter Biden, accusing him of spending thousands on memberships to a golf club and a sex club and on exotic dancers instead of paying his taxes In reaction to the new charges, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee says IRS whistleblowers had been prevented from following evidence that could have led to Joe Biden himself. With me now is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Republican James Comer from the Great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Congressman, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. Uh, Hunter Biden is now facing nine additional charges related to tax crimes for which he could be sentenced to a maximum of 17 years in prison. Your reaction? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, we've been talking about uh, lots of different crimes that we found in our investigation of the Biden family and the House Oversight Committee. Uh, This is one of many crimes, tax evasion. Uh, This particular tax evasion pertains to unpaid income while he was working with Burisma. But I would argue there are other things that that he received money from that he's evaded taxes. We believe they've also clearly violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act. We believe they've committed money laundering crimes. So uh, this is one crime that there's no question Hunter Biden's committed, but we believe there are many more. So uh, when uh, the special counsel, Mr. Weiss, was was named, there were a lot of skeptics in the House Republican Uh, conference uh, saying that he was not going to be fair. He was not going to be aggressive. The fix was in. Looks like uh, all of those skeptics were wrong. I I don't agree with that. I mean, this is one of many crimes the president's son's committed. In fact, uh, the two things that Weiss has charged the president's son with are the only two crimes that can't be traced directly back to Joe Biden. If you argue the Foreign Agents Registration Act violations, Uh, He was clearly an unregistered foreign agent for China, perhaps Romania, uh, Ukraine, and Russia as well. We don't know. We want to ask him about that in the deposition. 
But at the end of the day, who was he lobbying on behalf of those countries? He was lobbying his father. So, uh, you know, Joe Biden could have some uh, far liability as well. Mm. We believe that uh, this was clearly an influence peddling ring. We don't believe it's limited to the president's son. We believe the president's brother has just as much liability. And we believe the president of the United States was clearly involved and benefited from his family's influence peddling scheme. So that's what you're saying. But the counter argument might be that it's not that he's only charging crimes that cannot be traced to President Biden. The counter argument might, might be he's only charging crimes for which there is actual evidence. And that would lead mm -hmm. me to my next question is, can you name one piece of evidence or testimony that directly and credibly, credibly connects President Biden to any of this proven misconduct, proven. I could, I could name two. Okay. Uh, first of all, we, we believe President Biden committed a quid pro quo uh, when he leveraged a billion dollars of U.S. taxpayer money in Ukraine in exchange for firing the prosecutor, Shokin, who was investigating Burisma, the company that Hunter Biden just got charged with receiving substantial sums of money and not paying taxes. We believe that Joe Biden was directly involved in the termination. We believe this, Jake, because he admitted it on tape. That's that's one crime. The entire. Uh, we we'll, believe, we'll get to the second in a question in, in a second. Okay. But just for our right. viewers' awareness, the entire Western world wanted Shokin fired. Like it wasn't just President Biden. The entire Western world, the European Union. Uh, the G8, there, was, there were a lot of people, including Republican members of the House and the Senate, who wanted Shokin fired. It wasn't just like Vice President Biden, you know, conspiring with himself. So, okay, what, what, what's the second one you wanted to talk about? Well, the, the second one, clearly, with the Foreign Agents Registration Act. That's why the judge in Delaware uh, kicked out the sweetheart plea deal that Weiss originally negotiated. Remember just a few months ago, Weiss was trying to negotiate a deal that would have given Hunter Biden blanket immunity. He wouldn't have had to charge, been charged with any serious crime. Right. So the Foreign Agents Registration Act is the most obvious. And, and who is he lobbying on behalf of? I mean, he was lobbying on behalf of our enemies around the world. Who was he lobbying? He was lobbying his father. Right. But uh, we don't have any Biden evidence president. that he carried any. I, I don't know what evidence there might be about Hunter Biden and the Foreign Agents Registration Act. You might be right about that. I just don't know what uh, then Vice President Biden uh, might have done or and especially in those four years where he was not doing anything. He wasn't vice president or president. But let's move on to some other questions, because you've called Hunter Biden to testify next week before your committee, December 13th. You've said if he does not appear, you will hold him in contempt of Congress. Hunter Biden has said and his lawyers that he's willing to testify publicly. He just doesn't want to do it behind closed doors. He's afraid Republicans will leak his remarks uh, and they'll put, they'll put them out of context. Why not just allow his appearance to be public? I, I have to say, just as a journalist, I'm really, as you just generally know, I like the transparency. Ask him anything you want. I would like to see it. Jake, put, a, put our investigation, put my investigation next to Adam Schiff's and you tell me who's been more transparent. Every single bit of evidence that we talk about, we cite, we publish four bank memorandums, which show proof of suspicious wires and money laundering. We cite uh, different uh, suspicious activity reports from banks indicating specific crimes. You've got testimony through depositions and interviews with respect to 
crimes that have been committed by the president's family. So we've been transparent. Every deposition in the history of, of America has been done in closed doors. But we release the transcript. We will release the yeah. transcripts. You will know when he coughed in this transcript interview. And remember, during the January 6th committee, the, the children of the former president mm. testified for over 12 hours behind closed doors in a deposition. Every big criminal case in America has closed door depositions. But that was so an investigation. Of, that wasn't an investigation of Ivanka Trump. That was a separate investigation. But in any case, I, I, my, I guess my other question is just, isn't something better than nothing? Why not just jump at the opportunity to grill Hunter Biden on national television? Here's your chance. You know, you're, you're the dog that caught yep. the bus. Here it is. This isn't about politics. It's not about theater. Uh, my job, I, I know the media, I know the media, and I like you, Jake. I know the media would like to have a big public public show, and that would be very yes, entertaining. It's, but it's, my it's job me is that not wants to the entertain. Public show. Yes, it's me. Right, right. My, my, my job is not to entertain you all. My job is to get the truth. When you have a public hearing, uh, a, a regular committee hearing, you know how they, how they are. Uh, each side gets five minutes. We have 25 Republicans. We would probably get 35, maybe 40 questions in. We have about seven or 800 specific questions. We have over 20,000 pages of, of bank documents. We have dozens and dozens of wires from our enemies around the world. We have no idea what the Bidens were doing to receive this money. And we know one thing, Jake, they didn't pay a penny of taxes on it. So what he got charged with, uh, with that indictment last night, that had nothing to do with all of these so-called loans mm -hmm. that the Bidens have taken. We, we've identified, it appears, with the president's son and brother, uh, over $14 million in loans where it doesn't look like they've ever made any uh, payments on principal or interest. And at what point do those loans, if you're not going to pay yeah. them back, become income? So we think that this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. We think there are many more crimes. And my concern is that Weiss may have uh, indicted Hunter Biden to protect him from ah, having to be deposed yes. in, the, in the House Oversight Committee yes. on Wednesday. He but indicted him to protect him. Yes. The classic rubric. He indicted him to protect him. I got it. Well, look, this whole, this, this, Jake, this whole thing's been about a cover-up. You know, you've got two That's why he indicted him to, to protect him, to, to cover it up? Well, he... Look, you indict him on the least little thing, the gun charge and not paying taxes. He's facing like 17 I mean, additional years in prison. Yeah, but look These what he's felonies. done. Anybody else, anybody else in America would already be in prison, would already be in prison. You say he owes $2 million. He may owe 7 or $8 million if these loans are, are fraudulent loans. I mean, a loan means if. you are going to pay it back. So, so look, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this money's coming from bad people around the world. Yeah. Why are they paying Hunter? Why are they paying Hunter Biden? We believe that it's because they wanted direct access to Joe Biden. And I don't think any American, whether they're Democrat or Republican, would want to have a president that's compromised to our biggest enemy in the world, China. So, again, I asked for one piece of evidence or testimony that directly and credibly connected President Biden to proven misconduct. I, I, I will. I said it. I said it. The, fire, the termination mm. of Shokin in yeah, Ukraine, not, as well that, as the, that isn't it. His, his son and brother. Well, I look, y'all have been saying no evidence for a long time, and Hunter was innocent. I, I mean, it doesn't no, look to me like Hunter. 
No, no, I never said that. I've never said that about Hunter. I've, I've, oh, I've never said that about Hunter. But it's only a two-hour show. Chairman James Comer, always good to see you. I hope uh, you enjoy your weekend in the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Thank you so much. Uh, you too. Thank you, Jake. On to the rebuttal to that from a Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. That's next. In our health lead, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is asking the Texas Supreme Court to review a high-profile abortion case. He wants to overturn the order from a Texas judge who granted an abortion to Kate Cox, a woman who is 20 weeks pregnant. This after Paxton sent a letter to Houston hospitals arguing Cox does not qualify for an exemption to the state's strict six-week ban and threatens to prosecute any provider who facilitates her abortion. Cox's fetus has been diagnosed with a fatal disorder, trisomy 18, and is not expected to live more than a few days outside the womb. Cox's own physician says the pregnancy, quote, puts Cox at high risk for severe complications and threatens her life and her future fertility. That part is key because Texas abortion ban supposedly allows exceptions to save the life of a pregnant woman. With us now is Kate Cox's attorney, Molly Dwayne. Molly, so Kate's doctor said she couldn't provide the abortion without a court order because she, quote, cannot risk loss of her medical license, life in prison, and massive civil fines if her belief is not accepted by the courts. The court did accept this yesterday, but now Texas is still threatening to prosecute. Will Kate's doctor or, or anyone else still be willing to provide this abortion? Well, I think what Attorney General Paxton's activity over the last day shows is that the medical exceptions to Texas's abortion bans never really existed in practice. Because what we have here is a set of doctors and a real patient, this is a real person going through a heartbreaking situation right now with her family, where not only is she suffering the loss of a pregnancy, but she is dealing with the real implications for her health and her future fertility. And her doctor says, the care you need is an abortion. And what we have is the attorney general attempting to practice medicine, I guess, and second guess the judgment of those physicians who have, who have you know, put their lives on the line. And what would you do if you were her doctor? And the, the second that this lawsuit was, was filed, that we got this order, the attorney general personally threatened you in every hospital you've ever worked at. I mean, it's unimaginable. And yeah, it's shameful. I'm not I'm not questioning her doctor's activities. I certainly understand her fears. The Texas attorney general uh, says it, it does not qualify under the state laws emergency exemption. Um, has the state clearly defined what that uh, exemption looks like? They never have. I mean, we have both a six-week abortion ban in Texas that's been in effect for two years and a complete abortion ban that I think somehow gets lost in all of this that's now in effect post the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So we have two years of, of huge, massive abortion bans, extremely restrictive laws in the state of Texas, two years, and not once has the state told us what they think the exception means. They just keep telling us it's clear but yesterday was the first time that they said, ah, this isn't enough. This isn't close enough to death. And I, Attorney General Paxton, want to be the one to decide. I want to remind everyone out there that Texas law also allows private citizens, private citizens to sue anyone who assists anyone to get an abortion in the state. People can, of course, in theory, travel out of state for an abortion with no legal repercussions for anyone involved. But that's obviously often a complicated ordeal. Tell us why Kate's challenging Texas um, instead of going out of state. 
Well, there's two things I want to say here. So you mentioned the vigilante aspect of Texas law. Both Kate and her husband, as well as her doctors, are plaintiffs in this case. And that is because this is real. Kate's husband has potential liability if he assists her in getting an abortion that Attorney General Paxton thinks violates the law. I mean, this is not a hypothetical or hyperbolic situation. This is a real family going through this and trying to figure out what to do. In terms of why sue the state, you know, obviously Ms. Cox is putting herself out there and taking a stand, but it's really quite simple. She just wants to be able to access health care in her own community. And I think people talk really cavalierly, to be honest, about traveling out of state for urgent health care. And it's no small thing to do. And it's a huge ask for many families that will be traumatic and is a human rights violation on its own. But for the vast majority of families in this country, it isn't even an option at all. And so that's what's happening here is that people are being forced to carry pregnancies to term by the states in which they live, even when it means putting their lives and their future fertility on the line. Molly Duane, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, what Democrats say about Republican efforts to go after the Hunter Biden family. Stay with us. Back to the law and justice lead and a rebuttal to Oversight Committee Chairman uh, James Comer's claims about the new charges for Hunter Biden. I want to turn to Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman. He's also on the House Oversight Committee. Uh, Congressman, I'm not sure if you heard our interview with uh, Chairman Comer, um, but he said uh, that he thinks U.S. Attorney uh, David Weiss indicted Hunter Biden in order to protect him uh, because he's using the the lesser charges. I couldn't really make uh, out much sense of it, um, but I did want to give you an opportunity uh, as a Democrat on the committee to respond. Yeah, I mean, I think through that whole interview, what's up is down and what's down is up for Chairman Comer. Uh, The only reason I think Hunter Biden was prosecuted and charged with these crimes, which almost are never charged uh, for the gun charge and would be settled civilly for the tax charges is because of Chairman Comer and House Republicans undue and improper interference in an ongoing criminal investigation. But that's the least of concerns about what he said. Uh, Chairman Comer may be a great farmer, Jake, but he has no idea what he's talking about with criminal law. I was a federal prosecutor for 10 years. There is nothing remotely close to a FARA violation or to money laundering. I don't think he knows what they are and certainly doesn't understand what would be required by that. And what was particularly noteworthy is I thought you asked a very good question to actually name evidence, because every time Chairman Comer goes on TV, he makes bold accusations about all these crimes, 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 and they, 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 even though it's only Hunter Biden. And the only piece of evidence that he pointed to was uh, the Burisma uh, issue where Joe Biden um, encouraged Ukraine to fire the prosecutor general Shokin. That has been proven up, down, left, right, every single which way to be completely bogus. And in fact, firing Shokin, who was not prosecuting corruption, was actually bad for Burisma and therefore bad for Hunter Biden. This is a house of cards with no evidence. And Chairman Comer just proved that to you. I want to ask you about these these, these new charges about Hunter Biden. The indictment says, quote, Hunter Biden spent this money on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels and rental properties, exotic cars, clothing and other items of a personal nature. In short, everything but his taxes. Uh, You're not arguing 
that it isn't egregious, right? I mean, he had the money, he spent it on this other stuff, and he didn't pay his taxes. No, no, I, I, I'm saying that the uh, interference by the Republicans is what undid his plea agreement. And he had reached whatever deal, it was a misdemeanor, that he was going to be charged with. A misdemeanor is improper conduct. And it, it appears from the allegations in the indictment that Hunter Biden certainly engaged in improper conduct. But that's for the Department of Justice to figure out. It is not for the Oversight Committee in Congress to investigate Hunter Biden. And they have shown no connection to Joe Biden whatsoever, which is the only person in their jurisdiction and the person they're trying to impeach. And it is a complete farce and a sham for them to go forward with an impeachment investigation because of Hunter Biden's wrongdoing that has no connection to Joe Biden. And that is what this is. It is a political partisan effort to appease Donald Trump and to engage in slander and complete outright lies for their own political benefit. See, I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that the plea deal blew up because Hunter Biden's attorney, they wanted to guarantee that if Donald Trump were to come into office, they could not then charge Hunter Biden. They wanted to guarantee that there could not be any future charges uh, added um, and they wouldn't offer that. And so Hunter Biden's attorney walked away from the deal um, and I understand why they would want that, but Hunter Biden's attorney walked away from the It was a combination of that. Yeah. It, it was a combination of the fact that Donald Trump has demonstrated that he will weaponize the Department of Justice, and Hunter Biden was understandably concerned that someone as lawless as Donald Trump, if he were to become president, would politically persecute and prosecute Hunter Biden, regardless of the evidence. It was also because the judge had a role in this, and the judge did not feel it was appropriate to have a role in it. But it just underscores how absurd the Republicans' allegations are, that the reason why Hunter Biden wanted this protection is because of a legitimate fear that Donald Trump would pursue uh, criminally his enemies because he is an authoritarian in waiting, and this is the nominee for the Republican Party. That is a legitimate concern of Hunter Biden's, and it is a shame that it has to be one. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman, thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. You too. Coming up, what Israel says happened when its forces tried to rescue more hostages from Hamas. Stay with us. In our world lead this afternoon, the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council draft resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Thirteen countries voted in favor. The British abstained. The U.S. cast the veto. Intense fighting is reported in southern Gaza, which Israel says is a main stronghold currently of Hamas. The IDF says two Israeli soldiers were severely injured during an operation to rescue hostages held in Gaza, but no hostages were freed. We're also seeing images that show Israeli soldiers detaining dozens of men stripped down to their underwear, wearing blindfolds and sitting on the ground. An IDF spokesman says that in general, images from the region of stripped down uh, Palestinians are Hamas members and suspected Hamas members without referring to any specific photographs. Hamas accuses the Israelis of kidnapping and disrobing displaced Palestinian civilians. We can't independently confirm or refute either claim. What we do know is that every day we see images of the horrific suffering in Gaza, injured Palestinians being carried to hospitals, desperate families looking for food and safe shelter. What we don't usually hear is what Palestinians who live in Gaza 
actually think of Hamas and what they actually think of the war. That's why our next guest is here. His name is Joseph Browde. He's president of the Center for Peace Communications. And Joseph, your group has produced a series of videos called Whispered in Gaza, featuring the voices of, of ordinary Palestinians. Here's an example. There's a false stereotype that Palestinians in Gaza love rockets and wars. The wars that happen in Gaza are waged by the Hamas government for political aims that serve them alone. If you're a Gazan citizen who opposes war and says, I don't want war, you're branded a traitor. It's forbidden to say that you don't want war. They exploit us under the pretext of resistance. Consider the wars that happened in 2008, 2012, 2014, and 2020. They made profit out of it, and only the people suffered. Whenever there's a war and they get more aid money, they're the ones who benefit, and we get nothing. It's so important for the world to hear those voices, Joseph. Tell us more about how you recorded that and, and what the, the, the purpose of your group is. Well, the Center for Peace Communications is concerned with amplifying voices that oppose extremist groups and want a different future, uh, a partnership and peace among themselves and including with their Israeli neighbors. Uh, and there are a lot of Gazans, Jake, who oppose Hamas. Some of them had the courage to wage anti-Hamas street demonstrations in 2019, and again as recently as July of this year, uh, they braved gunfire in prison. Uh, but the world hasn't paid much attention to them, uh, and they still want to be heard. So we launched an initiative to interview uh, many Gazans across the Strip from all walks of life and platform them safely uh, by working with a team of animators and illustrators to do visual representations of the stories those voices told. Here's a clip from another one of your projects. These were recorded about two weeks into the Israel-Hamas war. At this time, as a person living in the prison that is Gaza, my prime and immediate enemy is Hamas, not the occupation. I have no house, no life, nothing. We're condemned to suffer because of this stupid organization. Who made us live in poverty in Gaza? Not the Jews, Hamas. Because of the events we saw on October 7th, the world changed its view of the Gaza Strip. Everybody came out to believe we're terrorists who cut people's heads off. Comparing us to ISIS, a lot of people suffer from this. To be candid, Hamas has utterly wrecked the Palestinian people. I hope our voice will reach the outside world. Now, I'm sure there are also a lot of Gazans who are furious and, uh, with the Israelis and, and hate the IDF. Uh, and, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm playing this or that your project is about pretending otherwise, right? Absolutely. And of course, it's possible to be anti-Hamas and anti-Israel at the same time. Um, when you look at uh, survey data, it shows that as many as 70% uh, of Palestinians in Gaza on the eve of this war were in favor of Hamas disarming and uh, an alternative administration ruling the Strip. The PA was the Palestinian Authority was the alternative offered in the poll. Um, 
but there's also statistics that that show a large number of uh, Gazans supporting resistance in the abstract, while at the same time they are very clear that they're angry at Hamas for starting wars it can't win while hiding in tunnels and leaving civilians to suffer the casualties. So these seemingly contradictory ideas actually, you know, can inhabit one mind. Yeah, we contain multitudes, as has been said. Hamas tries to silence free expression in Gaza. Watch this last clip. It's from a journalist who tried to cover an anti-Hamas demonstration. I was working for foreign press agencies because somebody needed to provide news coverage. While I was covering the event, I was beaten. My hand was broken. My cell phone was broken. My camera was broken. Our household was mistreated. My entire extended family, a lot of them. Any member of my family they got a hold of was jailed. They beat and abused them. They put nails in their feet. Tough stuff there. I mean, there is not a free press in Gaza. That's right. And that's why in our new free press series, uh, we're, we're giving a chance to the, these and other voices in Gaza to, uh, to comment on a regular basis about what's, what's happening to, to them during this war. Uh, but it is very dangerous for people to openly express uh, opposition to Hamas. And even now, people are afraid to speak because they aren't yet convinced that Hamas will be out of power when the fighting stops. Yeah, of course, it's deadly to be a journalist in Gaza right now with dozens of journalists killed um, in the bombardment by the IDF. Um, Hopefully that will all end soon and hopefully the Palestinian people will have a a brighter day. Uh, Joseph Browday, thank you so much for your time and thank you for that project, interesting stuff. We're monitoring an event right now with President Biden, he's in Nevada. After another horrific campus shooting in that state this week, we're keeping an ear on his comments. Keep it here. Stay with us. President Biden on the campaign trail in Nevada right now. He just addressed the tragic shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas earlier this week. Take a listen. Folks, we got to get smart. There have been over 600 mass shootings in America this year alone, plus daily acts of gun violence that don't even make the national news. This is not normal. And we can never let it become normal. People have the right to feel safe, be safe, and I'm fighting to make sure they do. But all these actions I've taken as President of the United States to end this gun violence epidemic is not enough. We need Congress to step up. My panel's here. And MJ, this trip was planned before uh, the mass shooting. It's part of a trip to promote the economy. Uh, But this issue of gun violence, uh, obviously going to be a big part of his pitch because he's really focused on uh, those suburban women for whom this is an issue uh, that could help him win over, uh, even though he's kind of shaky with them right now. Yeah, sure. And certainly it's something that he can talk about in terms of uh, a messaging push. I think there are certain, you know, segments of the population that this would be more geared towards. I mean, in terms of the reality 
back in Washington, D.C. This isn't, I mean, he has made this kind of speech in the past many, many times. And that is, of course, the really depressing thing about this. Uh, This is an issue, as you know very well, the White House is very, very familiar with. Uh, There's another mass shooting. You go and talk about how this is not acceptable. There needs to be action on the Hill. But the president knows better than anybody else uh, how difficult that is, even even when he is talking about uh, bringing back things like the assault weapons ban, red flag laws. I mean, it is very, very challenging. And I don't think he's standing up there thinking that something is going to get done legislatively. No, of course not. But of course, the main focus of this trip and his reelect is the economy. Um, you, you handled messaging for the Biden administration. This is what acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue said to CNN about today's job report and unemployment uh, falling to 3.7 percent. Take a listen. In fact, that low unemployment rate is the lowest unemployment rate for the longest stretch since Diana Ross topped the charts. And so this is part of an overall um, story of how uh, the economy is strong. Bidenomics is working. I mean, I don't know what that means. Is that the 60s? Is that the 70s? (laughs) She might want to add a a year there. Um, But um, take a look at this recent CNN poll. When Americans are asked about how President Biden is handling the economy, 67% disapprove, only 33% approve. So regardless of the Diana Ross and the Supremes references, uh, two out of three Americans do not think Bidenomics is working for them. Why such a disconnect? I think there are a few reasons. Firstly, it's hard to prove a negative. So it's hard to say to people, things could have been so much worse if we hadn't taken the actions we've taken. And I think that is true. If you look at where the predictions were about what was going to happen to the economy when Joe Biden took office, it was recession. Can we get to a soft landing? Are, are we going to crater out? Or, you know, is there going to be 10%, 15% unemployment? And we're not having those conversations today because of steps that Biden's taken. But that's a hard thing to communicate because what people are feeling is, yes, in tremendous job creation, yes, wages are up, but prices are also high. And people are feeling that when they are, uh, you know, when they're going out, when they're spending their money. So what Biden needs to do, what the White House needs to do is channel some of that anger. Bring the Joe Biden populism, the Joe Biden, I'm fighting for you. Uh, messaging to their economic message. And I think you see Biden do that. He certainly talks about, you know, Scranton versus Park Avenue, and he gets at kind of, you know, his underlying view that the economy should work for middle class families and working people. But, you know, the more that they can do to talk about how they're addressing prices, they're addressing costs, they do this with their junk fee uh, work, they do it on uh, health care costs. But the more they can really lean into that and show that he is fighting on prices, I think the better off they'll be. I mean, I think the problem here, Jake, is, and I certainly understand that, and you look at all metrics, inflation is improving slowly. I think most economists, even those on the right, would argue that that soft landing may come at some point in the new year. But the reality is most people just aren't feeling it. Yeah. Uh, living wages, get an apartment if you live in a major city, three, $4,000 for a one-bedroom. God forbid if you live in New York City. You're a young person recently graduated from college. You're a family with young kids. You have to afford for daycare. Most people can't afford these basic necessities that most of us just a few years ago didn't think twice about. So this idea that Bidenomics continues to be a success on paper, I will absolutely applaud the president and pat him on the back. But the reality is most people don't feel it. And until they feel it, as we say in politics, reality is what? Perception. So perception is reality. Part of the thing, too, I mean, with this event, uh, you're seeing this play out. 
the difficulty in selling something like the infrastructure package uh, is that it is a huge uh, piece of legislation and it takes a really long time for these things to actually go into effect. So you're talking about money, you're talking about funding, but at the end of the day, you're like standing in front of a bridge that is still broken. You're going to a train depot and like the rail tracks haven't been built yet. So I think the that is like a part of the disconnect. You don't have like tangible material things that you can point to yet to say like I did this this was my White House that did yeah. this. The other big news, uh, special counsel investigating Hunter Biden, charging him with nine additional uh, charges. These are federal tax charges, including failure to file pay taxes. Pretty unseemly because it goes into what he was spending his money on instead of paying his taxes. And it's a whole bunch of stuff I wasn't paying, spending my money on. Um, and filing a fraudulent tax return. Uh, how is the White House responding to, the, to these charges? You know, uh, there are few issues, I think, at the White House that are more sensitive uh, in the building than the issue of uh, the president's son. Uh, I think, in fact, you know, when you talk to people and they say uh, this is what the president thinks or feels about uh, the troubles that his son is facing, they probably actually don't know because so few people actually have firsthand insight into how he is processing all of this. Uh, I think politically they're going to try to make the case look like most people uh, are not going to vote on the issue of the president's son. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it is an image issue. It is a political headache. Uh, Republicans are trying to weaponize this. And yeah, that is frustrating for the White House that wants to be focusing on lots of other things. Did you see the interview I did with uh, the Oversight Committee chairman where he said that the that the special counsel was in, indicting Hunter Biden in order to protect him? I mean, of course I saw that, Jake. Look, what'd you, what'd you the, make, the president's you son more than likely is going to face some jail time, as we were discussing. I think it's very, these are very serious charges. Yeah. And the reality is, if you're a White House, when you're looking at low approval protect, ratings, that's not very much protecting you don't him want to talk about this while right. you're running for re-election. Uh, but I want to say I want to be sensitive on this because this is the president's son. Right. We know Hunter Biden has had a very difficult path and a lot of Americans have had children that have dealt with addictions. And we should be sensitive to that even as he goes through this process. But I would also say the White House not talking about this is there's there's strategic value in that, too. Republicans have tried to weaponize this for years. This was a piece of the campaign in 2019 and 2020. They have tried to tar Joe Biden with the idea that he's done some, something wrong. What the White House is doing is showing that Joe Biden is hands off. He's letting the DOJ run the process. That is that's good for the White House. There's strategic value in not. This is not just oh he doesn't. They don't want to talk about but the president's son. This, this is also a, this in is a would, we give the, would we give the same but, level of freedom here? Would we give that same level of grace? I'm not certain many Republicans would think so. But my point is, you had Jim Comer on, and he, his argument was the big smoking gun is that Biden got rid of Shokin who, as you pointed out, the entire Western world wanted to get rid of, by the way, because he was not seriously rooting out corruption. Right. The, the substance isn't there. So the White House not engaging is a smart strategic decision. And, and the president himself, I mean, he has been very, very consistent on this. Uh, what you will hear him say is, I love my son. I support his recovery and I'm proud of him. And that's it. But he would for prefer, the, he, for he the prefer to talk about the economy and the recovery than the issues that his son is facing. There's no doubt about that. All right. Thanks to all of you. We'll be right back. In our pop culture lead, Oscar-nominated actor Ryan O'Neill, the star of several landmark films, including Love Story and Paper, Noon, Paper Moon, has died. According to his son, Patrick, Patrick remembered his dad on social media by writing, quote, My father, Ryan O'Neill, has always been my hero. I looked up to him, and he was always bigger than life. O'Neill's breakout role was in 1967 on the nighttime soap opera Peyton Place. 
May his memory be a blessing. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, I'll speak with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, and former Vice President Al Gore. That's Sunday morning at 9 and noon here on CNN. Look out for two big events in the 2024 space next week. Tuesday, I'll moderate a conversation with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Iowa voters. Then Wednesday, CNN's Abby Phillip will host a town hall with Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Both will start at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Happy Hanukkah to him and to you. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.